Let us pray. Father in heaven, as the Lord Jesus Christ blessed and then broke the loaves beside the Sea of Galilee, bless us as we open thy word that we might be fed by it again that our faith might be increased and our love provoked, that we might have faith which worketh by love, that we might lay hold of eternal life. Heavenly Father, change each of us where we need to be changed, and thus our whole church will be changed to be more perfect in Thy sight. This is our prayer. Have mercy upon us. In Jesus' name, the head of our church. Amen. Amen. There are good reasons for studying the subject that's before us, the assurance of eternal life, and reasons to study it in detail and length. And they may not all appear to you at first glance. First, of course, is for you to know the clearly revealed evidence that the Bible teaches that you have eternal life. But there's also the benefit of learning the final and full salvation that we have in Christ Jesus. There's the benefit of learning the conduct that pleases God most perfectly. There's learning the conduct that adorns the gospel and shuts the mouths of gainsayers. There's learning conduct that leads to the most fulfilled and happy lives on earth. There's occasion by taking up this subject for exhortation to more obedience and transformation of your life to Christ. I appreciated at break time those that said to me about the first assembly and its sermon, I was comforted and convicted. And that's exactly what we should take away from the gospel. There is terror and warnings for the carnal and joy to the elect that the wicked are cut out of God's blessings. Will you look at Ezekiel chapter 13 with me? And let me share the text that I opened up the preparatory email with. Ezekiel chapter 13. I'm thankful for the subject of assurance of eternal life to shut the mouths of our adversaries and gainsayers that charge us with antinomianism. Antinomianism, meaning no law. In the past, one of the accusations raised against those that believe in election and predestination, like I mocked a few minutes ago, it doesn't matter how you live because you're going to go to heaven, it doesn't matter how you live because if you're not elect, you're going to go to hell. So they say, that's just a doctrine that has no law. Oh, look at what we're preaching. Look what we see in the Bible and how we ought to live. We want to oppose the primitive Baptist heresy that some... Much, most, or all the world are unconverted elect. They run to an extreme on that. And while we believe it, because it has specified Bible examples, and it is our sixth proof in the seven proofs of unconditional salvation, it is not something we can rely on. It's not something our family can rely on, nor our church rely on. So we don't want to overstate that. And I want to deal the death now to the foolish concept that faith is the great evidence of eternal life. Because there's other good works that are the great evidence of eternal life, and it certainly isn't faith. And there's many other reasons. And in the outline, I have a link to a whole list of them 
that would go beyond those 10 or 11 that I just shared with you. I love the doctrine as the Bible presents it. In which we have the greatest emphasis on the sovereignty of God that eternal life is an unconditional gift. It is not an offer. The only thing offered was Jesus Christ offered Himself without spot to God and God accepted Him. Now if you want to believe that salvation is by an offering and acceptance and you limit it to that one, I'll endorse it and agree with you. But also lifts up the responsibility of man to hear things I never heard emphasized as an Arminian. And that is what we heard this morning. Those things were not emphasized. They were not put in their proper place. It was as if love and the other fruits of the Spirit were put over in another category, which they like to lump together, and the common expression is, that's our sanctification. Well, the Bible teaches that without that sanctification, you don't have any salvation. And I love that. This text, 40 years ago, when I was 17 years old, the Lord impressed this verse upon me. Now it is in a context of one of the prophets warning the Jews that had been taken captive to Babylon about the false teachers afflicting that nation. But I saw in this verse, and the Lord showed me in this verse, this is the difference between the doctrine of Arminianism and the doctrine of sovereign grace. When I say Arminianism, I mean decisional salvation, that you get saved by inviting Jesus into your heart, and then you can live any way you want, because once you invite Jesus into your heart, and you add to that the doctrine of once saved, always saved, Everything's taken care of. Ezekiel 13, 22. About these false prophets and prophetesses. Because with lies, ye have made the heart of the righteous sad, whom I have not made sad, and strengthened the hands of the wicked, that he should not return from his wicked way, By promising him life. False teachers presenting a false doctrine take away the joy of the gospel from the righteous. In this case, there were lies being made by the prophets, but I do not want to get into them or I'll lose the whole point. The Lord used this verse somewhat out of its context to show me this is a problem I've had in the past. When false teachers start teaching, they take away the joy of my message from the righteous and they strengthen the hands of the wicked by promising them life so there's no reason for them to turn from their wicked ways. These prophets often would prophesy peace. Don't listen to Jeremiah. Don't listen to Ezekiel. We're going to have peace. And if there was going to be peace upon a nation as wicked as Jerusalem, the righteous, they were made sad. They were looking for God's judgment upon the profane abominations that Israel was guilty of. And it strengthened the hands of the wicked. Why should they turn since these false prophets are preaching peace? So I look at this text. You know, on the sovereign God of the Bible, the one that we love so much, 
You know, when we hear about Him and the Sovereign Lord Jesus Christ, when you hear this morning John 5, 25 through 29, that Jesus speaks by His Word and gives life to us, and then we believe that we are regenerated the way that Lazarus was called out of the tomb, that there's no preacher involved in regeneration anymore. There is a preacher involved in resurrection. We rejoice. I was 19 when an event occurred after coming home from one of my first bank jobs and reading John 5, 25 through 29, and seeing what I shared with you this morning when I was 19 years old, Sherry and I still believe I levitated out of the chair at the kitchen table. I don't believe that. But I just blasted out of that chair to see the power of our Lord Jesus Christ that by His Word, men live. And by His Word, all the bodies in the graves are going to come forward in the great day of judgment. It's a wonderful doctrine. And so it makes the heart of the righteous glad. We love such a Savior. We love a victorious Savior who says, I will not lose one of them. That's a wonderful Savior that we rejoice in. And every aspect that we think of Him, instead of just having... You know, Easter for His resurrection, we want His ascension into heaven where He's crowned with glory and honor and sets down at the right hand of Almighty God, principalities and powers being put under His feet. We love that Savior. So the heart of the righteous is made glad with the truth, but the heart of the righteous sitting under the sound of Arminianism never gets as excited about their Savior, never loves the God that is presented as much because it's a different God, it's a different Savior, and it's a different doctrine. And then, you know, for those of us who came from those circles, we would see people go forward, kneel down for a couple of minutes and say the sinner's prayer, and told that as soon as they get up, I can guarantee that you're bound for heaven now, no matter what happens in the future, once saved, always saved, and so it strengthens their hands, that you know, I'm okay. I'm on my way to heaven. When I was 3, 7, 13, 19, 25, I invited Jesus into my heart. And so it takes away the gladness of the gospel, and it strengthens the hand of the wicked so they don't turn from their wickedness. We want a church that is fully terrorized, fully terrorized by the Word of God to be persuaded to labor abundantly to be accepted of God. Is that scriptural? 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Do you know that if I was preaching on assurance of eternal life to an Arminian audience from an Arminian perspective, what would I say? I'm so glad I invited Jesus into my heart, and I'm so glad that you invited Jesus into your heart. Let's all be happy. But that is not what Paul taught. Here's Paul. 2 Corinthians 5, 9 Wherefore we labor, that, whether present or absent, we may be accepted of Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. 
Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. Those three verses tell us that the judgment day ought to evoke some terror, and that terror ought to persuade us to labor to be accepted of Him. We don't accept Jesus. We don't find our assurance there. We labor to be accepted of Him. And in 1 John 3 and 4, by loving the brethren, we are accepted of Him. God loves us, and God dwells with us, and God sheds abroad His love within us. This is why this subject is exciting and has very many side benefits for our church. It is important for us to remember that God was not surprised in the Garden of Eden at all. Our Lord's death was not an effort to recover man. The blessed God planned the entrance of sin into the world and had already chosen a covenant people that He was going to save in certainty in every single one of them. A subconscious, even a subconscious, or implied belief that salvation is mainly remedial steals God's glory and your assurance. If it's a maybe proposition that God's trying to recover the race, and maybe if you do the right things, you can get saved, that is not very convincing. And I've explained that before, that when you have God the Father and God the Holy Spirit and God the Son doing the same things to an equal degree for all men, that is not very comforting when you know by the definition of those people that believe that, that most of the world ends up in hell, that is not very comforting. But to hear that God is not in a remedial mode, but He's in a covenant mode. He's made a promise with His Son of giving Him a certain number of people by name whose names were written in the book of life, and He's given His Son to come and die for them. It says in 1 Peter 1.20 that Jesus Christ was foreordained to the cross. In 2 Timothy 1.9 it says, that it was given to us in Christ Jesus before the world began, the purpose and grace of God for our salvation. And when we read those things, then we know that salvation is not remedial, it's not a possibility, it's not a probability, it is a certainty of a 100% of a covenant people. That is comforting. And that it's all based on His performance. It is wonderful for us to read verses like Jeremiah 31.3 where it says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. If that applies to all men, it's quite worthless. But we understand it totally differently. That God has always loved us and we can never be separated from His love. And thereby, we get some of our assurance. Salvation is not God trying to save men if they will cooperate to get saved. The persons were chosen and names written before the world began. The outcome is not in doubt. Eternal life is not something we hope we have done enough to to obtain. Jesus Christ gave it to us fully and freely. We sang a few minutes ago, freely spilt for me. The Lord Jesus Christ shedding His blood, it was costly, but it was free to us. There was nothing we could bring to pay. Costly to God. Costly to His Son, but free to us. And that gives assurance of eternal life. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. 
with all the emphasis on good works, you know, some who are not taught and some who don't, don't want to take the patience or don't have the patience to study what we teach would say that we're preaching a heresy. And I loved titling one of our lengthy sermon outlines that's on the website, Salvation by Works. I loved entitling it that. John Gill, another Baptist minister of yesteryears, 300 years ago, preached a sermon about the necessity of good works, and that's the document in which he shows that he understood our five phases, though he didn't have columnar work paper at hand to lay it out the way we do. He explained phase by phase how good works have nothing to do with the eternal phase, the legal phase, the vital phase, or the final phase, but good works certainly have to do with the practical phase. He didn't call them those things, but he described them well enough that if you read the short documents, you would know that he understood it the same way we did, but they are certainly necessity. They they certainly certainly are necessary for us to have the assurance of salvation, the practical phase, and to be converted to the glory of God and our lives to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2. Let's look at works here contrasted. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 is what we emphasize most of the time because it's talking about our, our quickening, our regeneration. It says that we're dead in trespasses and sins in verse 1 and that God has quickened us. That's He's given us life. That's the first resurrection. That's being born again. And it proceeds on down through these verses. Verses 2 and 3 are describing how dead we actually were. Verse 1 says that we were quickened. Verses 4 and 5 repeat the same thing, that God who is rich in mercy quickened us by His grace and has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places. Now may may I check your memories right now based on that sixth verse. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Did we read this morning from Revelation chapter 20 and verse 6, that those who have part in the first resurrection live and reign with Christ as priests unto God? Right Right here. Same thing, right here. Because what's he talking about? Being born again. Being quickened. And that is the first resurrection. Because the two resurrections are spiritual and physical. This is the corollary. This is the cross-reference. But let's come to the 8th verse. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. How are we saved? The context is regeneration, and we are saved by the grace of God. How do you know you're saved, and what is the result of that quickening? Your faith. For by grace are ye saved. Through faith. We know that we're born again. We show the result of being born again. We have the evidence of being born again and the proof of being born again, however you want to look at it, by our faith. It's by our faith that we lay hold of the fact that we're born again. For by grace are ye saved. And see, that eighth verse is coming after seven verses telling us exactly what that grace is. God giving us life, quickening us when we were dead in trespasses and sins. Our faith is not the vehicle for God's grace to give us life because dead men don't have faith, nor do they believe. So in what sense are we saved through faith? We lay hold of the fact that we're born again, and we give the evidence of being born again so that we can embrace Christ 
and the confidence of eternal life, which is salvation, by the process and staged process of quickened into life, believing. Just like John taught it in the Gospel of John and in the Epistle of 1 John. For by grace are ye saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. This salvation is not of yourselves. You don't initiate it. You don't complete it. It is the gift of God. Salvation is a gift. If you initiated it by your faith, it's not a gift. It may have been an offer in their scheme. And I don't want to spend any more time on that. Quickening is entirely by the grace of God because you're dead. Sinners aren't sick in a hospital bed. And some physician, some soul winner, comes to them and offers them medicine that would improve their health. We're dead in a cemetery. And God must raise the dead, and it's quickening, and it's by His grace. But once we are quickened, we can lay hold of Christ by faith, and that is when we know that we're saved. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Even your faith being worked out of you from God quickening you is His gift. Because He initiated it all by giving you life in the first place. Not of works, lest any man should boast. So then verse 9 is tacked on. Not of works, lest any man should boast. And we believe that. And anyone listening to these sermons should understand that we do not believe that we fulfill any condition or instrument or means in order to gain eternal life because it's not by works. But without works, we can't know that we have eternal life. Without faith and good works, we cannot know that we've been quickened. And so those things are necessary in their own place. And I want verse 10. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained, that we should walk in them. The purpose of salvation is to change us to live differently in this world, bearing the good works as a result of salvation. We don't believe in good works for salvation. We believe in good works as a result of salvation because we are His workmanship. God's done a work on us. He's done a job on us. And do you know what that work and job is? He's given us life. And it first produces faith. And then immediately it produces good works. And they are good works that God's ordained that we should walk in them. Look at Titus 3 for the same point. Titus chapter 3. Right in front of Philemon and Hebrews. It's the third pastoral epistle. Titus chapter 3. Verse 3. Same apostle. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers' lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. The apostle Paul's confessing his unregenerate state. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. That's being born again. That's the first resurrection. That's regeneration. Which He shed on us abundantly 
through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that being justified by His grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, verse 5 said, not by works of righteousness. We are not regenerated by our works of righteousness. We don't proceed any further in God's plan of salvation by our works of righteousness. It's all of mercy and it's all of grace that God does it. But then look at, we have verse 8. This is a faithful saying. And these things I will that thou affirm constantly. So, I'm taking a few sermons on this subject. This is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. Now in a pastoral epistle, when a pastor is told, these things are good and profitable unto men, you pay attention. And that is stressing good works. That those which have believed in God might be careful. You know they love to guarantee eternal life. And once saved, always saved. So, you know, who needs to be careful in that scheme? There is no care taught. There's no care implied. It's all wrapped up and done because you went forward at a Christian rock concert. But notice, this is what I'm supposed to preach and this is what I will preach. Philippians chapter 2. We're talking about the assurance of eternal life. And the emphasis that God puts on good works, but those good works are not to get saved. Those good works are the result of salvation, and they're really the only true evidence of it. Until we can see the book of life. At break time, I was talking to a brother whose last name starts with K, and we agreed in the fact that if we could have a moment at the book of life, he would go for the K's and I would go for the C's. Does that make sense to everyone? But you know what? We can know that our names are in the book of life. That is what I want to leave this series with. We can know our names in the book of life as confidently as if we could see it. Because it says boldness in the great day of judgment. It says assure our hearts before Him. By His Spirit which He's given unto us. Oh, we want to know that. I hope that you understood this morning that we can have boldness in the day of judgment. It didn't say boldness in the day of death. It went, beyond, it went that step beyond it, you know, to something worse than death. And we can have boldness there. Philippians 2, you know these verses, but, you know, Peter would say if you know them and you're established in them, it doesn't matter. I'm going to repeat them to you until I die, is what he said in verses 12 through 15 of Second Peter 1. Philippians 2.12, Wherefore? What came before this? It's all about the Lord Jesus Christ. Verses 5 through 11 are wonderful verses about the Lord Jesus Christ who was in the form of God and thought it not robbery to be equal with God but came down and made himself in the likeness of men was found in fashion and went to the death of the cross and God has highly exalted him and every knee is going to bow before him at what event? The great day of judgment. Every knee is going to bow before the Lord Jesus Christ and confess that He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This is the Word of God. We are to be working out our salvation with fear and trembling. 
They say there is nothing you can do. There is nothing you can add. If you've invited Jesus into your heart, it's over. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible puts this emphasis on works as proving whether we're saved or not. And so the apostle here in Philippians 2, Wherefore, my beloved, he presses them to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. If you listen to most of their preaching and you go attend their services and you look at their websites and you look at their mission statement, their mission statement is usually an emphasis on saving others. But do you know what the Bible says? Right here. You need to be saving yourself. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And then there's an explanation. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. In that order of salvation of God electing us, Christ dying for us, the Spirit regenerating us, then we are supposed to work it out by changing our lives, repenting of everything that is disagreeing, disagreeable and disappointing to God and contrary to His Word and embracing and choosing everything that is agreeable to His Word. Working out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Because God worked the ability in us and now we are supposed to work it out for His good pleasure. And it goes on to describe just a few of the things that Paul had in mind here. Do all things without murmurings. So there's no complaining or whining and disputings. There's no fighting and strife. That she may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. And so forth. They will be judged when the Lord Jesus Christ comes and we will be saved. Look at Romans chapter 5 and verse 10 with me. Right now I... Right now I'm on the, I just finished up a little point that was, uh, we're not saved by good works, and I don't want anybody to be confused by that, and I don't think anyone here is confused by that, but there certainly is an emphasis on good works, isn't there? That's why I did the document entitled Salvation by Works. I had so much fun putting that together. There are certain documents and certain sermons that in their preparation and study were, were more pleasant and exciting than others, and that was one of the, uh, It's in the top 40 or something or 10 or whatever. But just looking through the Bible and taking all the verses that that show salvation connected to good works to line them up against those few verses that people have thinking that salvation is entirely by faith alone. It's just, I want you to know the Bible and we want the doctrine of the whole Bible. And it emphasizes works. Romans chapter 5 and verse 10. I want to move on to this point. Salvation is certain. If you love another, if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and then work that faith out of your life seriously and intently so that it results in love toward others, those are the two things that I've emphasized today because they're the two things the Bible emphasizes, faith which worketh by love, you have assurance of eternal life. But now, I want to show you from another side that you're, how sure your eternal life actually is. And I know I may be going back and forth and I may not be proceeding as smoothly as sometimes, but I'll trust the Lord for that. I love this that I've shared with you before, and I never want you to forget it, especially as you get closer to the hour of death, to know that you have a lawyer. We need a lawyer. There's a judge, and we've committed crimes. We need a lawyer, and the lawyer is the Lord Jesus Christ. There's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. 
Now, if he had died on the cross and hadn't, ra- and hadn't been raised from the dead, we would wonder how safe and secure we would we were. But he was raised from the dead. But there was more than that. And so we have it in Romans 5 and verse 10. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. This is who you ought to look to. And this is where you ought to look. You have a lawyer. If Jesus Christ's death reconciled you to God, God's anger against your sins and God's anger against you for your sins, if that was taken out of the way by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, now that's huge, isn't it? If God's anger against you for your sins was taken out of the way, By his death, that means God is reconciled to you and to me. He's at peace with us. He's put forth the atonement for us. We're at one again with him, which is what the word atonement means. At one meant. We're at one with him. But notice what the verse says. For if, and this is a great big if, if all the sins were blotted out, so that we're now a reconciled object of God's affection, because it already tells us in this passage, in verse 5 and then in verse 8, how much God loves His elect. But if we have all our sins taken out of the way and God's love can be freely directed toward us, even on a vital basis and on a legal basis and a practical basis, there's something else the apostle wants to remind you and me of. For if, when we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, since the sins are already out of the way, we shall be saved by His life. Oh, I like that. You know, some of the preaching today is kind of a memorial for me. Because I remember when Romans 5.10 first came to me a long, long time ago and the power of that verse that If, when we were God's enemies, His death took all those sins out of the way so there was no longer anything separating us, how much, with Jesus Christ not dead, but rather alive, will we be saved through His life, by His life? Do you understand that? You have a living Savior who guarantees your eternal life. They have a living Savior, with a small s, that doesn't guarantee anything. You can run to Christ and find consolation for your soul. You can run to to the Lord God of heaven and thank Him for His Son, Jesus Christ. And you can thank the Lord Jesus Christ for saving you. And so there's a certainty in our salvation that by our works coming together is just wonderful. And it's what the Bible teaches. It is the doctrine of the Bible. I hope that you can see the power of Romans 5.10. The power of Romans 5.10 is repeated in 8.34 of the same book. Romans 8.34, Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather. Yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. You know, this is not emphasized as much as it should be. 
If the apostle can say, yea, rather, if the apostle can write much more, we ought to emphasize the fact that at the right hand of God is an ever-living lawyer and intercessor and mediator for us. Amen. I want Him to be interceding for me. Well, then show yourself to be God's elect, and you can know that He is. It won't change what He's doing, but it'll change your comprehension of it. Thank you, Lord. You say, is that anywhere else in the Bible? Oh, you know it is, don't you? Is that anywhere else in the Bible? It's Hebrews 7.25, seeing He ever liveth to make intercession for us. He's nothing like the priests of the Old Testament. My brethren, fatalistic fear, having a fatalistic fear means that you're not perfect in love yet, and we're going we're gonna to get you perfect in love by God's grace. Because 1 John chapter 4 says that if you have any torment or if you have fear, you haven't been made perfect in love yet. You have not yet fully embraced the love God has toward you, the love you ought to have toward Him, and the love you ought to be showing others. It's just a little love problem in your life. And you need to learn that. It's 1 John 3 and it's 1 John 4. Your, your love isn't perfect yet. But when you full, did you hear me tell you a little while ago that there was a time in my life where I didn't like the three words, God is love? That's a little problem. Because what that does is it steals some of your confidence. When I, you know, I just thought that was a little too fairy. And you know what? If God loves everyone equally, and most of them end up in hell, it's fairy. But oh, I want you to embrace those words, God is love. God is love, and He has shown it toward His elect, and He will not lose a single one of them. If you have fatalistic fear that leads to spiritual slothfulness or hopelessness, you're foolishly misunderstanding something that I'm teaching you. You know, and I'd like to come right down to the pulpit and go around to about 10 or 20 of you and just ask if you're listening because I want to save you from that. Don't think that you're too great of a sinner for Jesus Christ. That is fatalistic folly. Right. That is proud rebellion. While, you're, while the devil tells you, well, I'm just a humble sinner and I don't know if God can save one as bad as me, that's just proud rebellion. It's not humility. You know who you're acting like? Adam in the Garden of Eden. Why didn't Adam run to Almighty God and confess his folly and repent of his sins? Why did he want to hide? Why did he want to try to cover? Why did he want to try to excuse? Just run to Christ! Fatalistic fear is proud rebellion. It's not humility for a self-concept of great sinfulness and guilt. For guilty sinners that are made guilty by the Spirit of the living God run to Christ and they find their consolation there. That's not the Spirit of God that's making you feel that way. So you want to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God and pray for Him to show you the examples of the Bible that Jesus loves losers. Terrible harlots came to Jesus. They weren't rejected. They were loved by Him. He loves losers of every kind. Don't deceive yourselves about sin. Run to Christ. He loves the greatest sinners. Ask Saul of Tarsus. Ask Mary Magdalene. Let Paul be your example. Let others be your example. Him that cometh unto me, 
I will in no wise cast out, is what the Savior said after He said the words, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. There's the doctrine of election, and there's the doctrine of the reception of the Lord Jesus Christ toward those that come to Him. Run to Christ and believe on Him, and tell Him you want to be His, that you're all His, that you'll say, Lord, what wilt Thou have me to do? He's not going to send you to the Gentiles like He did Saul of Tarsus. He's going to tell you to listen to what you heard today in the preaching and love your brother. Despair is as stupid as Adam hiding in Eden or the lazy servant burying his talent. Do you remember why the lazy servant buried his talent? Thou art an austere master. Well, the austere master said, if I'm an austere master and you are right, then that is more reason why you should have put your money out to usury, not less. Do you understand? When we let that greatness of God and the terror of God cause us to be hopeless or cause us to be slothful because I can't please Him, what kind of thinking is that? God expects a lot, so I'll give Him a little. That's why I called it proud rebellion. God expects a lot, so let's give Him a lot. And you can do, you can give him everything that he asks for and looks for because he works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. The difference between the righteous and the wicked, just a couple of minutes. The difference between the righteous and the wicked is enormous. We find in Psalm 711, God is angry with the wicked. How often? Every day. Yet I have loved you with an everlasting love. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. But I have loved you with an everlasting love. Is that a decent difference? Is that a pretty significant difference? Is there a pretty significant difference between a vessel of honor and a vessel of dishonor? Between a vessel of mercy and a vessel of wrath? Are those huge differences? Mark out those huge differences that God has made for you. Mark out the fact that salvation and damnation are so far apart that God has done such a work to pull these two outcomes so far apart, there will be an effect in your life. And that effect will show that that has been done for you. Because salvation is so great of a gift that God has given to us. Is there a savour of life unto life? Yes. Is there a savour of death unto death? That is terrible. There's incense that goes up in the presence of God proving a man is dead by his response to the gospel. And there's incense that goes up to God that is sweet. The difference between salvation and damnation is so great, it, it must be grasped in all the phases that God has put into place for you. Before the world began was that eternal phase. At the cross was His only begotten Son. In regeneration was power exerted that was also used to raise His Son from the dead. You would not believe the gospel unless God exerted the same power it took to raise Jesus from the dead. That is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. If the difference is huge, and glorification is going to be a total change of the universe, there's going to be a remodeling done of everything we know. The difference between salvation and damnation is great. And for God to separate and show these outcomes, there's, a, there's an effect from it. It's huge. It's not marginal. 
It's no fine line. As I once taught this nine years ago, some of this. These operations of grace are staggering in scope and must by any view affect lives somewhat. The operation of conversion, which involves human means by God's blessing upon them, still makes great change and is a significant event. Why a Damaris and a Dionysius would leave the philosophers of Athens to follow Paul. Those that are converted will obviously have a difference from the world and from their prior self. Is there a difference between Lazarus and the rich man? Is it significant? Did the rich man think it was significant? Did the rich man think it wasn't very significant in light of the luxurious living that he'd had while he was in this world? Or had he all of a sudden forgot all the luxurious living? It is significant. The coming of Jesus Christ is going to reveal an enormous difference. Some are going to be admiring him. And the rest who don't obey him are going to be consumed by his mighty angels and flaming fire. Oh, my brethren, there is such a great difference between, listen to these words, there is such a great difference between being foreknown with the impossibility of separation. I like that. Foreknown with the impossibility of separation and being rejected as entirely unknown and separated forever. Is that a pretty big difference? I want you to get that difference and lay hold of it. Salvation has an effect on lives so that there is not confusion of most elect with most reprobates. The general rule is there's going to be a huge difference in lifestyle, attitude, spirit, and love of God and Christ. We cannot minimize or rationalize Zacchaeus. We should look at Zacchaeus and say, that's the kind of change that should take place in a person's life when they believe on Jesus Christ. We shouldn't minimize or rationalize the book burning at Ephesus where 50,000 pieces of silver in the form of witchcraft books were burned up. Thessalonica that turned from their idols to serve the living God. To think the general rule is carnal Christians is wrong. The general rule is God's grace changes lives. Salvation has consequences, and we want to show those consequences in our lives. I close with 1 John chapter 3. Turn there with me, and we'll close. Yes, there have been unconverted elect, and yes, we teach it, and yes, we show where it fits, but boy, there's no hope in that for us. We've heard the gospel. We can't rely on that. You don't fit into 1 Corinthians 10. You were born 3,000 years too late. You don't fit into Romans 11. You were born 2,000 years too late. Those were for other times and other groups of people that the Bible tells us about. It just shows us the power of His grace. 1 John chapter 3, verses 1-10 through 10 are basically teaching that the evidence of eternal life, the evidence of being born again, is living righteously and not sinning. Verse 8, he that committeth sin is of the devil. You say, I sinned yesterday. Did you sin Friday as well? And Thursday as well? And Wednesday, Tuesday, Monday, and last Sunday? And you haven't confessed them and you like it and you're just going to live in it and you're haughty about it and you're rebellious about it and profane about it? 
you're going to hell. When it says he that committed sin is of the devil, it's talking about a person that's happy in it, continues in it, doesn't have repentance, doesn't have remorse, doesn't have hatred, doesn't have zeal against it, revenge against it. It just shows a person that doesn't have the Spirit of God in them or the life of Christ in them. That's what it means here. It doesn't mean that you can never commit sin because look across the page from chapter 3 and verse 8. Look over to 2.1. My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. That's why he's writing. So we get the message that he's trying to encourage us not to sin. And if any man sin. Does that help a little bit? If any man sin. Chapter 1, verses 8 and 10 tell us that if we say we have no sin or we say that we have not sinned, we're liars and the truth is not in us. This is continuing in a course of sin without repentance. He that committeth sin is of the devil, 1 John 3, 8, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Thank you, Lord. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him. He's born of God. He's got a new seed in him. He doesn't have his earthly parents' seed in him. He has the Spirit of God's seed in him. It's the new man. He has a new man in him so that he himself cannot continue in a course of sinning without great conviction and repentance, especially under the preaching of the gospel. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin there in verse 9, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. See, when a person is born again, it changes your life. And that's what I want to leave you with. When we're born again, there's a new man inside of us that hates sin. And I want to encourage you to put that new man on, to feed that new man, to listen to that new man, to shut up the old man, to mortify him, which means to put him to death, to put him off. You're going to be tempted to sin. You'll be tempted to sin within the next 15 minutes. You're tempted to sin right now in your thoughts. I want to give you assurance of eternal life. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. His seed remains in him and he cannot sin because he's got a new nature from God. May the Lord help us to understand the seriousness of the difference that it makes in these great big outcomes. See, this, this outcome over here of the righteous and this outcome over here of the wicked, God has eternally predestinated us sent His Son to die for us and raised us from the dead and sent the gospel to us. And we don't have to sin. Amen. We will sin. And when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Amen. But brethren, let's take away from today comfort that the Bible actually says we can know we're born again, how we can know we're born again. If we're born again, then we're in the first resurrection. If we're in the first resurrection... The second death hath no power upon us. Our names are in the book of life. And we can know that. Let us hate sin. Let us hate sin. May Jesus Christ be praised.